0: That food is welcome to with bowl and spoon thank you for being my guest Kimberly yeah, it's uh, a why a don't pleasure. you go ahead and introduce yourself
1: my name is Kimberly Bracken and i live in Pittsburgh pa and I've been involved in urban agriculture for over a decade now.
0: So did you grow up here in Pittsburgh?
1: I did not. I grew okay. up in a suburb of Detroit. Uh, I was, oh, wow. I lived there through high school, and then I went to a small college in Michigan, where Hope College, where I actually met a group of friends, and we just had a lot of shared values We were passionate young people who wanted to change the world, and we would have change the world tea parties, and we would sit around and drink tea and talk about how to be a good neighbor and how we could share resources, and so, you know, in college... a
0: completely different (laughs) upbringing than me. I was out smoking cigarettes and drinking beer, and in the mosh pit, yeah,
1: yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so we, we decided to move to a city together, and they scouted out some cities. They visited. Oh, wow. How many, how many of you were there? Well, there was probably a group of 30 that would spend time together in that way, but a lot of people were going to specific cities for specific jobs that they had gotten from graduating, okay. and there was a group of seven of us that didn't have that. We could just go. We didn't have set jobs someplace. Ah, you were so We were yeah. free floaters, so we decided to stick together because we all liked each other so much and we moved to the central north side because we wanted to move into a community that already had a strong community and the central north side is very diverse it has a lot of different types of people um, racial gender economics you know all just a mixture and so we moved into that neighborhood and we just asked people how we could support the community and the resounding voice was we have nowhere to get good coffee (laughs) People got coffee at the 7-Eleven and they were like, we don't, we want a coffee shop. And there was the Monterey pub, which people loved, but it was only open certain times of the day. And they said, we just have nowhere to hang out during the day. And so I had worked in a cafe, a coffee shop before in college. And so had one of our other friends And so, (laughs) you know, bold young people were like, we can, we can do that. (laughs) We were all like social work and religion majors and, you know, nobody was a business major, but we felt confident we could figure it out. So we got a $30,000 small business loan from the Northside Leadership Conference. Wow. And we rented a space that had previously been an office space. It had never been a cafe. On the corner of buena vista and jacksonia yeah we transformed that space into a coffee shop it's a very small space so it was really cozy we really wanted it to be a space where anyone felt welcome we were kind of like anarchist capitalists (laughs) we were like we want the homeless people down the street to be able to afford a cup of coffee we want the neighborhood kids who come in after school to be able to afford a chocolate chip cookie we wanted everyone to mix and mingle and it It worked. It was so beautiful. We had CMU professors hanging out with homeless people and having the most interesting conversations about life. Wow, what a social experiment! It was wild. I mean, it it was some of the best years of my life. And I actually lived upstairs, so I could roll out of bed, you know. Open the cafe at 5.30 in the morning. The sun, it has beautiful windows on two sides of the building. And the sun would just pour in in the morning. Oh, and I would love that. You know, the beauty of a coffee shop is you get to know so many different types of people. And a lot of those people are still acquaintances and also good friends now. So... So who
0: there are other people that are still in Pittsburgh? They are, to me, yeah. I, might I know some of them? Oh, um mm-hmm.
1: Phil Johnson is the director of operations at Millie Ice Cream.
0: Okay. He worked as a roaster Definitely. at Commonplace
1: Coffee for a while. Joanna Deming uh is the head of the Food Policy Council. Uh-huh. And her husband Gavin runs Allegheny Goatscape.
0: Right. So,
1: um and then I know them. Yeah. Um Ashley Northcook is a psychologist. She's a therapist. Um and let's see who else. Our friends Emily and Stephen, they actually moved back to Michigan to be closer to family because they wanted to raise their kids there. So sure. And that was the seven of us. And we made wow. all of our decisions completely consensus, um, which is amazing and probably really inefficient, but that's what we wanted to do at the time. <laughs> and I ran the art, so I would have I rotated that art pretty much every month so I loved that because I would go to the gallery crawl and I would find an artist and I would contact them and I would you know have them do a show for our space and then we would have a big potluck and sell the pieces and they would you know they would make most of it and we would get a small commission and I loved I loved everything about that cafe it was called Beleza Community Coffee House and Beleza means beauty in Portuguese You know, we had this wave of Michiganites because, Michiganders, I should say, uh, because, you know, we were young. I was 20 when we opened that that coffee shop. I was still going to University of Pittsburgh. I transferred and Mm -hmm. I was, you know, I would go to school during the day and then paint the cafe at night and... So we were very young, and we had other people so who were cool. graduating college in Michigan who were friends of ours that didn't have plans, and we would just tell them to move to Pittsburgh. It was so <laughs> affordable. We had this cool hub of people hanging out at the cafe, and we got about 30 people to move into the neighborhood. Wow. So we could just, I mean, we would just stoop, you know, we would hang out on our stoops, and
0: I had so many friends within a few blocks. That's great. So you, yeah. you created that. Uh, I know a lot of people say that they want to create a community and, and have all their friends move to a certain neighborhood. Yeah. You, you actually did it.
1: We did. And you know, I have to say, it's interesting, right? Because we did that. It was so positive. It made the neighborhood safer. And this is gentrification in so many ways. Yeah. You know, the, it was it was beneficial to have a cafe a block from your house. So those property values went up. And we were educated young white people. So those property values went up. And I can't say that, (laughs) you know, gentrification is a double-edged sword. You know, you're rehabbing abandoned houses. That's great. I love old buildings. I don't want them torn down. They're torn down every day in Pittsburgh. And I want those houses to be rehabbed and saved and bought or rented out, right? So the influx of interest in a neighborhood causes that and i'm glad for that however it's not often affordable housing it's expensive to rehab old buildings Mm -hmm. so it doesn't always you know become affordable housing which is an issue um and when you have a bunch of white people move into a neighborhood it can have that effect and i'm sure it did you know that the property i owned a house on boyle street for seven years um with my then partner and you know, we saw even that street. It's not technically the Mexican War streets. It's right behind the library on Federal Street mm. um, towards the hospital. And we even saw that street just, you know, just get so much more expensive in the seven years we lived there. So gentrification is real and it it's a challenge. How do you improve a neighborhood? How do you keep a mixture and a diverse group of people with different, different income levels in a neighborhood as you improve it. Yeah. I think it's really a huge challenge. And that's where being a good neighbor really comes in. Because, you know, every once in a while I'll read some really inspiring story. And one comes to mind that I think I actually heard on a podcast. But this man um, wanted to paint, repaint his house. And his neighbor's house was looking pretty rough. And he decided he wouldn't repaint it until he could also help his neighbor repaint his house. Because he didn't want his neighbor's house to look worse. Yeah. And he he figured out a way to support him so they could both repaint them at the same time. Stuff like that, you know? I mean, just yeah. being a good neighbor. And I lived... Um, I did a lot of work at the Children's Museum with teens in my neighborhood, and the way I would recruit those teens is I would wander around the streets, and I would just talk to teens, and I would offer them a job, and these teens didn't have alarm clocks, they had a really hard time coming to work on time, they didn't have parents to sign waivers for them to participate, I mean, they had incarcerated parents, they were involved in gang violence, and those are the kids that we need to reach, you know? And, and how do you get them? You wander around their neighborhood. But those were me my too. neighbors. That's the beauty of living in an economically diverse neighborhood is those kids lived on my block. And I had this really interesting experience that spoke volumes to me when I was biking home one day. I was turning onto Federal Street near Allegheny Commons, and it was it was dark out. It was night. And I saw this group of teenagers, probably like 12 to 16, and they were just rowdy and they were on the sidewalk. They were turning the corner and one of them just ran out at me.
0: And oh I my just gosh, that's too yeah. I,
1: I was in the middle of the street. I just slammed on my brakes and I froze. I was I was scared. And he didn't do anything. He was just trying to freak me out, which he did. And <laughs> I success. looked I looked at the crew of kids and one of the boys had been in my summer program the year before. So I knew his address. I knew his parents' phone number, and I made eye contact with him, and he looked terrified. Yeah. <laughs> he looked so scared. Yeah. And I just said to him, I, was, I just said, Devin, tell your friends not to do stuff like this. It could have really hurt me. And those boys just got so quiet, and they just walked away. And wow. it speaks so much to knowing your neighbors, Because the only reason I knew him is because I was connected to my neighborhood. And safety, you know, we have these safety committees in these neighborhoods. And so much of safety is knowing the people you live around. I had drug dealers on my block. I knew they did drugs. You know, if there was, I mean, it gets messy, right? Because there's a safety thing. Like if I'm calling the cops on them, they know it's me because I'm the only one on their block that would probably do that. And You know it gets messy right Mm -hmm. like how do you how do you make your neighborhood safer and also be safe when you live so closely with your neighbors and you know your neighbors it was one day at a time how do you handle these situations you know and there's probably less drugs and there's probably less violence in that neighborhood I, i can't say for sure but you know because of the gentrification and again great that that neighborhood is safer Bad that it pushed a lot of people out. It probably pushed grandparents out that were raising their grandkids. Mm -hmm. It probably pushed out certain minorities that weren't making as much money as other people, you know. and Eliminated some affordable rental units. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So... It's, I love that neighborhood and it's a beautiful, beautiful place for anybody that hasn't been there. The houses are just lovely and it's a historic district, so they've been really well preserved and the coffee shop is now Commonplace Coffee. It's a location of Commonplace and... That's Um, the
0: actual location that you guys have. Yeah. So we established it as a coffee shop and it's still a coffee shop.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Which is great. And it seems like they're doing really well. We sold it to a couple that opened Buena Vista Coffee and it was there for a period of time. And then I believe they sold it to Commonplace Coffee. And quite frankly, it's such a small space It's hard to make that a sustainable small business that isn't part of a larger entity. So I think the beauty of Commonplace is they have multiple locations. They roast their own coffee. So they have a better margin on things than we were just ourselves, you know. So I think that they seem like they're doing well there. And I think that that probably really helps to be part of a bigger kind of mothership operation.
0: Well, I was going to say it's not particularly small. Like I I didn't. I wouldn't yeah. have thought that was the space because that space seems pretty significant. Although I was there in the summer and you've got the outdoor seating. The outdoor you've seating. You've got the park across the street. Yeah. It's an amazing place. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah the I mean, that, that garden across the street is just gorgeous. And it's it really totally volunteer maintained. Actually, the beauty of Beleza, I loved it so much for so many things. I also never thought I would work with kids. But we had these kids that came in every single day after school and they would ask somebody in the coffee shop for $1.25 and they would buy a soda or they would buy a chocolate chip cookie and they would just sit around. They had nowhere to go. And I lived upstairs, so I asked their grandparents if they could come over and cook with me. And what was so fascinating is these boys, I had these three boys, they were probably like eight, nine, and 10. And I said, <laughs> I said, do you guys want to come over and make lentil soup with me?
0: And they were so excited. Did, did they know what lentil soup They was? had no idea. <laughs> no.
1: What I, what I realized was these kids were just hungry for attention. The fact that somebody was going to spend time focusing on them, yeah. doing anything. We could have done anything. <laughs> we could have done crafts. We could have baked yeah. a cake. They didn't care. They came up to my apartment and we would just cook together. And so I fell in love with working with kids because it was like a light bulb went off. I just thought, how do you keep kids off the street? How do you keep kids out of gangs? You give them a space to be creative, to get paid attention to, to do something with their hands, to do something purposeful. You give them that space. And it just the other stuff fades and it's not that easy. I mean, as kids get older, it's harder to engage them, but kids join gangs at at young ages because they're looking for a family and sometimes they don't have a solid family foundation. So they're looking for that. So if you can give them a space and a community with positive reinforcement, that's something, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's worth a shot. It's worth a shot to keep them into, in a positive way of being, you know? So, I was really inspired by the time I spent with those kids. And so um, Jackie Hoover was a neighbor of mine and um, she came into the coffee shop all the time and she saw that I was spending time with these kids and she said, you know, you should apply for a small grant because I had started to run a mentoring program. And I used the local YMCA in the north side and I got... Just
0: ad hoc, like on your own. I was like, I'm in a mentoring program.
1: I'm just going to do... Kids need to learn how to read and they're struggling. And this is a way we can spend time with them. So I got a couple of my girlfriends and we rallied a couple of kids from the neighborhood. And the YMCA let us use their space for free. And we would meet mm-hmm. once a week and I got a bunch of educational materials for free. And so I was just doing it volunteer and just using my own money. You know, the $7 an hour I paid myself at <laughs> When you, you know, the first couple of years, you oh, don't yeah. pay yourself. You really don't pay yourself. We, we tried. Mount Eret Baptist Church had these small community grants. So I wrote my first grant. And I got a $3,000 grant for my mentoring program, which went a long way because it was a pretty simple program. It just helped me buy snacks. I was able to take the kids on field trips. In the winter, I think we took them ice skating one time. It was maybe four or five kids because I was also working full-time still. So Uh it was hard to do on the side. We would also just go to my place and make food and cook things. And I remember we did like gingerbread houses around the holidays and you know it was a small group but it was great it was really fun egg
0: dyeing and pumpkin carving and that kind of stuff yeah
1: (laughs) I will say it was hard to do field trips because I could not always connect with the parents to get permission you know the kids are wandering the neighborhood so they would just show up for the program but as far as taking kids somewhere and having that permission that was a challenge so we didn't do a lot of field trips but then I wanted a break from doing the coffee shop full-time, and I had fallen in love with working with kids. So I got a job at the Children's Museum, part-time, running their Youth Alive after-school program. It was an arts-based program, and so I designed activities every day, about an hour of activities, for 25 middle schoolers from Allegheny Traditional. So it was me, my co-worker, Jawanda, and two high school interns running that program, which... If you know middle schoolers and you know rowdy middle schoolers and you know 25 rowdy middle schoolers, it was a handful. And those 8th grade girls were so mean. My first year, I cried so much because oh they, are, they, are, they smell your fear and they are mean. <laughs> they are mean. So once I got, you know, that was my first year working with a lot so, of that age wait. group. What happens is you get more confident and you just let it roll off your back by my second third year there i could just laugh at it you know but when you're first encountering these inner city kids they're just rough like they're growing up in really intense environments they don't always have a loving supporting family around them community they don't have all their physical needs met sometimes and they're rough. They're they're survivors. You know, some of these kids. Obviously, it's different for every kid. And some, some of those kids at ATA had great families and were super involved in their lives. You know, it wasn't yeah. everybody. But some of them had really hard lives. And they take that out on you. They say, hurt people hurt people. Mm-hmm. You know, those kids have some type of trauma or pain sure. in their life. I mean, you don't really see people who are incredibly mean who haven't gone through something. But, you know, I... I toughened my skin, I got more comfortable, and as the kids realize you're more confident, they pick on you less. Because they know they're not going to get anywhere. There's no reaction,
0: so why bother? Or you get sassy. That's kind of smart of them, though. Yeah, you get
1: sassy and you talk back to them. You you learn to speak their language. And if they're sassy to you, you're sassy back, and it really kind of cuts the whole, the whole thing in half. So you have a food podcast and this is where my food story really begins. Well, I should say it started a little bit before that. I had friends,
0: the coffee shop is, you know,
1: the coffee shop. I got into caring about local food. We sourced from a local baker who was fantastic. He used to be a chemist. And he Me. would, he would tell us all the formulas of the baked goods and he was such a cool guy. We just adored him. His name is was Joe. Still around Pittsburgh? He is not. He was helping a family member shovel her driveway and he had a heart attack. Oh, shoot. Yeah, we it lost was, him, lost him. He he was oh. such a good guy. We really grieved that. I think that was after we closed the coffee shop, after we sold it. We have great memories of him. He was a fantastic guy. and excellent baker we had the best cinnamon rolls they were just huge Mm. and we had cream cheese frosting and we would serve them warm and they were just they were delicious what year was the coffee shop open 2006 to 2009 It was about three and a half years. Yeah, the last half year we were navigating how we were selling it and kind of closing shops. We got wraps and salads locally. I think it was Mung Bean Dynasty. It was like this place that specialized in fresh sprouts. Yes, I remember that guy. Okay. Yes. Yeah, he ran it out of the South Side. Mm -hmm. We would go and pick up a whole load, and so there were salads and wraps. We had very limited space to serve fresh food, but we tried to make sure we had something. So I got into local food then, and I started... Getting passionate about food justice and the global food system and the local food system. And I was a vegetarian for ethical reasons. And lots of my friends were too. And I got into urban ag through my friends Courtney and Mark Williams. They worked, I don't know if they were at the Pittsburgh Project at the time, but they ran gardens there. They were really talented at growing food. And then later on, they actually jump-started Ballfield Farm, which is my favorite place in the entire city of Pittsburgh. It's so magical up there. If you've never been there, go to a volunteer day and take it in. It's just gorgeous. It's a permaculture farm. They have fruit and nut trees, berries. They grow a ton of vegetables and herbs. They have a hoop house with a giant fig tree and a giant rosemary bush. And they grow gorgeous tomatoes in there. And my friend Carol Gonzalez... Manages a lot of the project now as a volunteer. Um, So it's totally volunteer run. You can be a member for something like $30 a year. And every time I go there, they're handing me bundles of garlic and, you know, (laughs) berries and tomatoes and squash. And I mean, it's just they grow so much food. It's amazing. It's so amazing. It's an abandoned ball field tucked into the north side. And Courtney and Mark worked with a group of people and they remediated all the the infield and they um, started a farm. It's gorgeous. I believe Allegheny Land Trust through Trolley, which I'm on the Trolley Committee, that is a a project between Grow Pittsburgh and Allegheny Land Trust, and they work to purchase agricultural spaces. So I really wanna spread the word about this because we are actively looking for farms and gardens in the county that have been around for a couple years that have community support, so we can protect them, and they are working on purchasing Ballfield Farm to protect it. Um, so that's great, and you know it's also nice to have a baseball field because it's got a wonderful deer fence around it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean they still get groundhogs and rabbits. Yeah, I. So anyway, I was friends with Courtney and Mark, so we would talk about food. And they were really passionate, and they knew a lot. And I just started researching local food. And, you know, being a vegetarian, I was eating a lot of soy. And my whole reason for being a vegetarian was I wanted to support a more sustainable food system. And I started learning that a lot of soil, soy was being grown in the, um, the Amazon, and they were tearing down the rainforest at rapid, yep. rapid rates to grow soy. And that was so eye-opening to me. Yeah. And so you think, what am I doing? What am I buying? What am I investing in? And at the time, in the early 2000s, there wasn't a lot of local organic soy, sprouted organic soy. That didn't, you know, that wasn't as much of a thing. At least I didn't know about I don't it. I do know. So, and and quite frankly, I didn't have the healthiest diet because I think as a vegetarian, I ate a lot of carbs and not enough protein. And, you know, it yeah. wasn't like, my health wasn't great. Um, and so once I learned about soy, I thought, you know, I don't have, now we have pea protein, we have seitan, we have all these things. So I started doing research and I found local companies that grew grass-fed beef, that grew poultry, that was eating organic feed, that was... Pasture raised, they killed their animals in a humane way. And I just, you know, it felt really torn because I'd been a vegetarian for seven years. But, you know, knowing that it wasn't serving me as far as getting the protein I needed and getting the vitamins I needed, and I stopped being a vegetarian after seven years and my health improved. I think just getting B vitamins from ground beef, which I should say, Recently, I don't eat a lot of ground beef, but recently I was working with a food pantry at my last job. I was the food justice advocate at Homewood Children's Village, so I worked with a lot of food pantries. The goal of that job was to improve food security in and around Homewood, so we did food distribution Homewood Children's Village is an amazing organization. I just adore the people there. They do such powerful work. They are such wonderful people. And I loved, I loved my time there. That's the job that brought me back to Pittsburgh because I had left Pittsburgh for a couple years. I was working with some food pantries and there was a food pantry in Wilkinsburg. I think it's just Wilkinsburg food pantry, maybe. They do amazing work. He said, we give out meat, but we don't carry ground beef. We don't carry beef. And I said, wow, that's really interesting for a food pantry. Why do you do that? And he said, because every pound of beef requires a thousand gallons of water to produce the beef as far as feeding the animals, you know, watering the crops that feed the animals and the whole production cycle. Right. Um, That was the figure he gave me. Um, Maybe it's slightly different than that, but he said, so we just don't. You know, it's so, so consumptive. Whereas turkey and chicken, I think, is like a a couple hundred gallons. Still a ton of water for Mm -hmm. meat, right? And and I think about that, and I, I wish I could. I wish my body did better as a vegetarian for those reasons, you know. So anyway, I got, at the time, I got into local meat, and I started shopping. The Northside has a fantastic farmer's market, and it was two blocks from my house. So I started purchasing throughout the entire season of the farmer's market. That's where I'd buy all my stuff. And then I would buy bulk from the East End Food Co-op. So I found that we produced very little waste. We had very little plastic from food packaging. I was supporting all local growers. And then I learned about Penn's Corner Farm Alliance, where you could get all your local food during the winter. And that was amazing. You could put an order in, pick it up just like a farmer's market. So then I I was really sourcing local food year round. And it felt so good. You know, it just made so much sense to me. And so then I'm at the Children's Museum. And this is all kind of happening at the same time. My awareness of food, my passion for gardening. I had a community garden plot in Old Allegheny Gardens in the central north side. Started by the famous Randy Gilson of Randyland. He started that a long time ago. Painted that fence yellow. I learned how to garden in a community garden. So, you know, I'm still very passionate about access to community gardens because now it's my job (laughs) and I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute but I just came into it paying 30 bucks for a plot throwing tomato seedlings in and asking people around me how to garden and you know it became my job. So people say do you have a background in horticulture and I did eventually get my permaculture design certificate from Phipps Conservatory. But when I first started um, at the Children's Museum, I wanted to start Edible Teaching Gardens because we didn't have any. My gardening experience was from being a community gardener. It's a valid experience because yeah. you learn my garden neighbor was Gwen Moyer. She's she's wonderful. Yes. Do you know Gwen? Yes. She's so great. I miss her. Uh, and she, she was an amazing gardener. She just knew how to grow food and she'd grow so many tomatoes and can them up and she was just sweet and she, she would just let me ask her a million questions and she imparted all of her wisdom, you know, her decades of gardening and I learned a lot from her, you know. She, I learned a lot from Gwen and um, so many other gardeners that just taught me. Jana Thompson was the volunteer manager. I just called her the other day to learn about espaliering fruit trees as per my yes. new position at Tree Pittsburgh. She knows a lot about that. Her entire backyard is a permaculture mm-hmm. food forest She's done a lot for the urban community, and now she works at the food pantry, increasing food security. So she's, I just think the world of her. She's, she's such a cool person, and um, she knows so much, and she's always willing to answer all my questions and have me over and show me around her backyard. And I used to take my teens, the um, oh, yeah. gardening programs that I ended up starting at the Children's Museum, I would take them on field trips to her backyard, Oh yeah, that's um, a great and she, field trip. She always sure. hosted us, you know, she's two blocks from the museum and she she was so generous in hosting us. So anyway, she um, was the volunteer manager. And I have to say, if you want to learn how to manage a community garden, talk to Jana. Because if somebody <laughs> if somebody didn't she was a hard nose, if somebody didn't weed their plot for two weeks, she was on them. <laughs> because those weeds impact other gardeners. Mm-hmm. They go to seed. They seed in other people's beds and then it's a problem. And so she she really was an amazing volunteer coordinator. She donated so much of her time to those gardens for so many years. I mean, I, I had a plot there for something like six years and I think she was doing it the whole time. So she was there for a long time. So I was a community gardener and I started working at the Children's Museum and I did my first season. Now, I'm a pretty creative person, but I don't have a background in the arts so I was doing all this arts programming and I would bring guests in who were, spe- you know, specialists in different things. And we'd work with cool, cool organizations like I think Lakeisha at Ujima Collective came in and did did a bunch of projects with like um, African printing, African symbols and printing. And, you know, we'd have really cool guests come in and we try to make the programming really rich. But my heart was in gardens. And so I went to our executive director, Jane Werner, and at the time our development department was in transition. So we didn't really have people who had a lot of spare time to write new grants. And I had written one small grant, (laughs) but I had a background in writing. I had studied English in college and I'd done some professional writing and internships, so I was a pretty confident writer. And I just said, hey, can we can I write grants to build edible teaching gardens here? We have all these spaces. And I showed her pictures of all the little spaces around the museum. And she said, sure. So they they allowed me as part of my part time job to write those grants. And so I just did some simple searches. It was at the time that Michelle Obama was doing Let's Move Museums and Gardens. Mm-hmm. So there was a big oh, that's
0: wave sweet. Yeah, perfect.
1: There was a wave of interest in museum gardens, in edible gardens, in food education. There was it was the perfect time. And that had just started. So I found Nickelodeon had a $2500 grant General Mills had a $10,000 grant, and Allegheny County Health Department had a $7,500 grant. So I wrote those three grants, and I got all of them. Sweet. Congratulations. <laughs> and so Jane, Jane said, all right, build your gardens. And, you know, I did awesome. not know the first thing about building a public museum garden. But our deputy director at the time, Chris Seifert, was fantastic. And he had a background in landscape design and landscape architecture. So he worked with me. And, you know, I was well connected because of the coffee shop. So I knew a lot of different people. So I knew contractors, and I knew people who were rehabbing old buildings. And you know, there was a ton of that in the north side. So I knew a lot of contractors. So my friend Rob Edgar knew this guy who was tearing down a warehouse in Wilkinsburg. And he said, I can get you a bunch of old wood, like really good solid wood. So He brought over these huge planks of wood and we build raised beds. And then he had this stack of old terracotta chimney liners that he just gave me. So we created beds out of the terracotta chimney liners and planted in those. And there was all different sizes. So one of my favorite beds was like, there were these huge rectangular chimney liners and they were just so beautiful. Um, So it was a really unique garden, you know. And then the grants, I got them in like late July. Well, in Pittsburgh in late July, it is pretty hard to find vegetable seedlings. It's a little bit better now because I think gardening, especially with COVID, has had a huge boom. But at the time, there was not a lot of nurseries doing that. So Mindy Schwartz of Garden Dreams. Somebody told me about Garden and Dreams. And Mindy
0: Schwartz, also one of the founders of Grow Pittsburgh.
1: It Was she? Yeah. I guess I didn't know that. Yeah. So, um, and she worked at Construction Junction. So she was she was in that whole East End community over there. And she was... Garden Dreams was, you know, her brainchild. And she... I heard about it. And I went to her and I said, I have all this grant money. And I need to plant a garden. What do I do? (laughs) It's fall. I've never done a fall garden before. And she just... She invited me over to her house. And she sat down on the computer with me. And she gave me the best hoses to buy. And the best tools to buy. You know? And the best everything. And she just... Pointed me to everything I needed.
0: Oh my gosh, that's
1: amazing. She was amazing. She, I mean, those gardens wouldn't have happened in the way they did without Mindy. She became a good friend of mine. She was such a good friend. And there was a season later in life that was a really hard season that I was going through a depression. And I worked at Garden Dreams. And she was just, it was a hard season in my life. I wasn't totally myself. And she was just amazing to me. So she, I think she lives in Maine now. She's not around, Um, and Garden Dreams, obviously, is run by Grow Pittsburgh, and they're they're doing great work over there, but Garden Dreams was foundational. She also showed me how to do winter gardening, so she set me up with rebar, and she cut all the PVC pipe, and she got me the big plastic. I mean, she just taught me so much. (laughs) Because she knew how to do
0: all that stuff. I mean, and it had to be overwhelming. Like, you go in there and you're like, I don't know what to do. I and she's was, like, this, and this, and this, and this, and this. I was so hungry for it. Yeah? I just...
1: I mean, my twenties. I, I had infinite energy. I mean, I. <laughs> oh, this
0: is still. You're still your 20s. Okay. I am right, in gotcha. my twenties. <laughs> I am like twenty
1: four years old. I mean, I, I wow. was, I was young. I was really young. Yeah. What did I start those gardens in? in twenty ten, I think. I was hired at the museum in two thousand nine. I believe I'm really bad with dates. Um, I think it was two thousand nine, and then a year in, I got all those grants. So I was still running the after school program. Now I was building gardens, and then I was connecting the gardens with every program at the museum. So we had tot hikes, so then the tots would go in the garden. And then I met Melissa Butler. She was a kindergarten teacher at Allegheny Traditional Academy, and she somehow we were already working with them. She was already taking her kids. She would bring her kids over and do these incredible classes at the Children's Museum. She would have them lay on the floor and look at the dome in the post office and draw it. And she she was just, she oh, cool. she would have these yeah. magical classes with her kindergartners. And she had <laughs> such a command over her class, but she was so compassionate as well. She was such an inspiring teacher. And I didn't have any teaching background. So I will say to this day, Melissa Butler taught me how to be a teacher. Because I love teaching now. And I've never been trained as a teacher. I just have a lot of experience doing it in those gardens. I really learned from being alongside Melissa. And so she started bringing her kids to my garden. And then she got the other kindergarten teachers to bring the kids to my garden. So I was doing multiple field trips in the garden every week for years. And we started opening it up to other schools. So then I had third graders and fifth graders and eighth graders. And, you know, I just work with the teachers to design lesson plans. And we would do math or we would do science or really we would just take them around and have them taste everything. We'd give them cherry tomatoes. And I remember this one class harvested our entire harvest of carrots. And then we made ranch from scratch Carrots in the garden. so
0: magical to pull out of the ground.
1: And we'd make ranch from scratch and hummus from scratch outside in the garden. That's and then they so would taste fabulous. everything. And then we'd harvest the lettuce and make a fresh salad and put edible flowers in it. And I mean, it was just, it was an amazing job. And so with all those grants, the museum realized the benefit of how we could just explode these gardens into all of our programs. And they gave me a full-time job. So I just created that job pretty much with the museum out of all this grant funding. And then Alcoa came to us and they said, we want to give you 25 grand a year to do green programming. So that's how Food City Fellows started. So that was the teen educational employment program. So we employed teens. We would pay them for six weeks. They would take a vacant lot in the north side and they would create a community garden and they would grow all the food. They would lay the compost, the cardboard. We would do a soil test before all that. um, We'd test the soil, compost, cardboard, make sure it was safe to grow, build raised beds, build fences. We did that every year. And the first year was a partnership with Women for a Healthy Environment. They gave me two of their interns and we designed that program together. And then even actually they started kind of running a wing of it on their own too. I worked with Michelle nakaradi Chevkis, who's still there at Women for a Healthy Environment. So that was just a really exciting program. We were doing field trips. We were doing that program. We did an entire farmer's market series where we did raffles of like green cleaning and home preserving and just like wow. educational books. We just give books away at the farmer's market and We would have demonstrations and we did kayaking on Lake Elizabeth for a summer. And so Alcoa became a regular funder. So they would give us 20 grand every year and it would support all of our garden programs, the main garden. Then we built an outdoor classroom. Keep America Beautiful came to us. Keep PA Beautiful as part of Keep America Beautiful. They said, we want to give you money to make an outdoor classroom. Wow. So we took our fenced-in outdoor space that the preschool at the museum uses as their play space. It was just dirt. It's flat dirt. Nothing in it. And we created a berm for the kids to run around and raise beds. And I planted fruit trees that I espaliered around the fence that Jana helped me with. She pruned those for me for a couple of years. Um, musical instruments and a deck and a shed. And, I mean, we just built that space wow. out. And it's still like that. They still use it. Oh, that's so And nice. there's peaches on the peach trees and... Um, I talked to Danielle Linzer, who's the director of education over there now, and she said they got apples this year. So oh, <laughs> those fruit so trees great. are still yeah. producing. And then we did a permaculture garden with Juliet olshock who's now at Phipps. She was running a permaculture consultant project at the time. And we did a permaculture garden with elderberries and pawpaws. Unfortunately, the museum reached a point where they didn't feel like they had the capacity to keep all the gardens. That was a pretty small garden. So they did just turn that into grass again which was sad, but, you know, I'm glad the other gardens are still up and running. They have a full-time person now that does garden education, and they're still going. And they have it's cool because I had all these dreams of having these, like, People that weave vines and make willow structures, and I want, you know, I wanted like all this art in there, and they've done that since I left. They had people come in, and they now there's this really cool kind of entrance way. They're about to rebuild the beds again because that wood doesn't hold up for too long in the garden.
0: What a legacy for you to be able to go back and see. Oh, I love you it. Know, you created all of that. Yeah, you helped to create all yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, lots take of help. Complete responsibility yeah. for it. But I still, was, like, I was out there shoveling the impressive. dirt every day. No <laughs> <laughs> you built that, and, and it's still here, and it's lived up to your dream of yeah. what it was going to be in the future, so that's phenomenal. Congratulations on yeah. that. That's huge.
1: Yeah, and it says so much that, you know, Jane, I learned so much about being a leader from Jane Werner. She is such a powerhouse, and she's delightful to work with, and she's so open-minded that, you know, she's she loves innovation, she loves creativity, and she's always... Interested in how we can expand things and how we can create more programming and how we can bring fresh ideas into the museum and who are the artists we can work with. And so, you know, for me to go to her, she didn't say, Well, do you know how to write grants? Well, how many grants have you written? And, you know, she just said, Yes. Yeah, <laughs> she said, it. Try, it. try it. Yeah. Just try it. You know? And then actually, The story behind it is that we were going to use this fenced in space that belonged to um the property managers of allegheny commons it was right across the street Mm. and they had agreed to it so i wrote the grants thinking the garden would be there and then they changed their mind so i went to jane one day i said look i've got almost 20 grand and i don't know where to put a garden like, we have no space. And she said, well, let's take a walk around the museum. So we walked around the museum, and there's this little L-shaped space right when you enter the museum that the the lobby looks down onto. And she said, how about here? There was some, like, dying bushes. <laughs> like, there was nothing there that was important. And the bushes weren't even doing well. And she said, how about here? And, you know, just the way she was able to pivot, you know, that's why that museum has been so successful, I think. Jane knows how to pivot. She, she saw a challenge and she's like, well, let's figure out plan B. No big deal. Like she's done it a million times, you know, <laughs> like because she yeah. she led that entire expansion. So the museum was the post office and the Beale Planetarium and they were running programs out of both. And then she spearheaded a capital campaign to build the center structure the lantern building with the beautiful Ned Kahn sculpture on the outside that wavers in the wind, like the breeze, you know, and she, I mean, that was all like Jane spearheaded that whole thing. So she really is an incredible leader. I felt very fortunate. And what's cool is she was a regular, well, not a regular. I met her at Beleza when I worked there.
0: That's great. So
1: Salim Gabriel was um, executive director of the Pittsburgh Project. And when my friends were scouting a city to move to, some of them had worked at the Pittsburgh Project in the summer. And that's how they got to know Pittsburgh. So they knew Salim. Mm -hmm. And Salim had a vision of bringing thousands of young people into Pittsburgh. You know, we have this population that's much less than Pittsburgh at its peak. We used to have something like, what, 800,000, a million people.
0: Now we have 350 or something. I don't know. I think I don't know. at one point we had 600,000. 600, 600. okay, like so okay. We're at half the population okay. that we were yeah. built for.
1: yeah. And he just had this dream of getting young people to move to Pittsburgh. And every summer, Pittsburgh Project would employ young people to repair elderly people's houses and run summer camps for young people. And so I got to know Salim through my friends. And he was friends with Jane. He is friends with Jane. And so Salim would frequent our coffee shop and have his meetings there. And so he introduced me to Jane when I was still at Blaza. So then it was really cool to get to work with her, you know, at yeah. the museum um, after having met her at Beleza. So
0: I learned so it's, much. It's such a small town. It it's really such is. a small Pittsburgh. That's why I love be, working yeah. here. Yeah. Or living here. Um, There's one degree of separation. Yes. I <laughs> yes.
1: I, I mean, I left Pittsburgh for four years and I decided to move back because of the community. I mm-hmm. love the city as well. I love the topography. I love the culture. I love how much is happening all the time, but the people here are just gold. I have so many friends that feel like family and would just, we would do anything for each other and we still share resources and we still, you know, support each other's kids and families. And, um, I just, I, am so lucky I can go, a lot of places
0: in the city and just bump into people I know. Yeah. Whether they're close friends or just people I know from yeah. from being here, you know. I'm always surprised when I meet someone and we have so many friends in common that we haven't met before. Yeah. Like you and I. I'm, yeah. I am surprised. And yeah. like Joe, I never had any sort of interaction with Joe before she became the director Food of policy. the Food Policy Council. Yeah. yeah. It's really weird.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's great. I mean, Pittsburgh has all the benefits of a bigger city, but it's a small town in a lot of ways. And that's why I love living here. I I plan on being here for a long time. I I really love it. So, yeah. So, the museum, we started all those gardens. We did a lot of garden programs. And then I mentioned I went through a depression. So, my life changed in a lot of ways. I left Pittsburgh for a couple years. And when I came back, I was back on the urban ag scene. I was working at Homewood Children's Village. They created a new position called Food Justice Advocate, and I was so grateful that they hired me in. And the team there was just a total blessing to work with. They were just fantastic people. I loved everybody I worked with. And I essentially was a case manager. I had a bunch of families that I would work to get them anything they needed. And there was several of us. Um, they were called advocates. And that model of Homewood Children's Village was based on the Jeffrey Canada model of Harlem Children's Zone. And it was cool because I saw Jeffrey Canada speak at the new Hazlet Theater many, many years ago when I was still at the Children's Museum, I think is when he came, and I was so inspired by him. I knew about Homewood Children's Village because they said at that at that meeting, at that lecture, they said, we're gonna start a chapter in Pittsburgh in Homewood, and we're you know, we're doing this. And so that was Homewood Children's Village. And so I knew about it from its inception. You know, I was at that meeting where they announced that. Jeffrey Canada was so inspiring. And so to work at Homewood Children's Village, then to come full circle, I was so excited to be there because I knew kind of the birth of it and where it had come from. And then the team there is just, just incredible. So I got to do this food justice job. You know, I got to, we would get phone calls of people just saying, I have no food in my house and I have three children. Can you help me? And CCAC in Homewood actually has a food pantry and they opened it up to us. I could take families there and they could just get as much food as they needed. It was so incredible. And then we worked with Bible Center Church to do food distributions. We would deliver food. We would get free boxes of produce from the food bank. We would deliver a 15 pound box of produce to about 90 people every other week. It's very powerful work. And so I was helping people with housing. I was helping people with utility payments. I would just meet at Everyday Cafe, which if you haven't been there, go to Everyday Cafe. It's a little gem in Homewood. It's such a wonderful place to meet or work. I spent a lot of time working there because we were mostly remote as a staff. I would just meet with families and I would say, what do you need? And I would tutor their kids after school. And I would, if their kids were having issues in school, I would go to the school. I would be with the kids. I would take them where they needed to go, get them home, get them wherever. And I was very involved with some of those families. Um, And it was, I mean, it's like groundbreaking work. You're helping people not become homeless. You are helping people get into programs where their utilities are covered so they have gas in their house. They do social work. They pretty much are case managers. And that's life-changing stuff. It's hard work. It is emotionally draining work. And they are doing it every day. So I just think the world of them. And I had a great experience working there and felt like I was supporting people in making real change. One of my families, she came to me and she said, look, I... You know, I've got a couple of kids, I need a job. Um, I'm thinking of going back to school, but I don't have money. And I said, what do you think about culinary work? Um, Because my friend Jen Flanagan runs Pittsburgh Community Kitchen. She was a neighbor of mine in the Central North Side and a regular at Beleza. And I used to babysit her kid. (laughs) She came across this model out of Seattle. She found the funding and she started that project and talk about changing lives. They remove barriers to employment. So if somebody comes to them, they have no money, they have no ID, they have no job references, they have a jail record. Pittsburgh Community Kitchen welcomes them with open arms, helps them set their lives up, and then gives them free training and places them in a job. I mean, completely life-changing work. So Jen is still a friend of mine, and um, I just love what she's doing over there. I just think the world of her and that work. And so I was able to get one of my families into her program, and she completed the program. She loved it. Changed her life. You know, it was just really amazing work. I, yeah. I did a lot with food. We were trying to get the Westinghouse Greenhouse back in action because they needed a bunch of repairs. They're really hoping to start it up. There was a science teacher there two years ago that was, that was using it, but it had a leak and they're waiting on the school to repair it before they could, you know, so we, yeah. we got kind of stuck in that process. But they have a garden and there's teachers there that use their teaching garden. I actually was able to start food pantries at Faison and Westinghouse during my time there. So lots of help from other colleagues and the food bank. We got a grant from the food bank to get a freezer and a fridge at the Westinghouse pantry. They had a big room and they were going to do a full service pantry. So they were going to have meats and frozen items wow. and refrigerated and everything dairy. So I hope that's up and running. I haven't checked on that lately, but I think they're still doing that work. Yeah, so I love my time at HCV. I got a great opportunity to work at Girl Scouts of Western Pennsylvania. So I left my food justice work. It was just a great opportunity. I love management because I love mentoring people. I love being a resource and encourager. My favorite thing at the museum was I had so many interns. I had so many staff when I worked there. And I just got to say, what is the work that you would most love to do? And then help them do that work. Help them, help them get to a position in their life where they were doing that. And one of the projects at the Children's Museum, I ran with a Chatham grad student, Beto Recon. He managed this language exchange program. I got a grant from the U.S. Department of State. They funded this program called Museums Connect through the American Alliance of Museums. And we got a chunk of money to work with a science museum in Quito, Ecuador to do a year long exchange program with teenagers. So we had our teens learn Spanish. We had about 60 teens in our program. They would come after school. They were high schoolers. And Ruth Spurlock, um, I had two staff, Ruth and Beto, and they both spoke Spanish (laughs) I didn't speak Spanish, but I wanted this program. I wanted to increase language learning. They designed... We designed this really cool program. Teens would come. They would cook. They would learn about food justice. They would learn about food systems. They would learn about Ecuador. They would Skype with teens in Ecuador and speak Spanish and English back and forth. So the Ecuadorian teens, they would be learning English. We would be learning Spanish. And we'd have these Skype sessions every week. And the kids got to know each other. And then... We got to take six teens to Ecuador for 10 days. Oh
0: my God, that's and, so great. And
1: I got to bring six teens from Ecuador to Pittsburgh for 10 days. And I got to go to Capitol Hill to represent the program. It was a big deal. you know. U.S. That Department of so State cool. um, got to go to D.C., got to meet all the other programs. FIPS ran a program from that grant as well. I think it was with a, a museum, because it was all museums, a museum in Africa. And my friend Jordan Molino, who is the exhibits designer over at Phipps, we went to college together <laughs> we took we took photography classes at Melwood Screening Room through Pittsburgh Filmmakers. We were like in a photography class then went off and both got into the plant world and she ran a FIPS program and I ran a children's museum program so we got to go to DC together that was super fun so she designs those exhibits at FIPS. She does such an, I mean I just think she has the coolest job I think I have the coolest job now but she also has a really cool job. <laughs> so that was a really cool exchange program and And what I loved, I loved working with Beto and Ruth and all my other staff that ran the Food City Fellows Program. And, you know, I I tried really hard to pay people a livable wage from those grants. And I tried really hard to just like make their dreams come true. Like, you know, I would hire people that wanted to work in the urban ag world and wanted to work with teens. So they were already doing work they're excited about. But to get really specific, like, what do you want to do in this program? Help me design it. Because you're going to be running it. So let's do stuff that you're really excited about. Because what I found is that whenever you're managing people, if you can bring their passions into what they're doing, they're going to be a better leader. They're going to be a better teacher to the people they're working with. And they're going to do better work if they're invested in what they're doing. So I I just have always loved, you know, being a leader, director, manager, whatever, because I was able to help people grow personally and in their career with what they wanted to do. And I just, I loved doing that. So I got this opportunity at Girl Scouts to have a staff of 30 people. I was a Girl Scout growing up. I loved Girl Scouts. So it was a big shift in, you know, coming from the food justice world to being at an organization where my work was not really surrounded that, but you know i was there for nine months um it was a good fit in a lot of ways there was things there that weren't as great a fit as i'd hoped so i traveled for a couple of months and then i applied for this job at tree pittsburgh i am the giving grove program manager and the giving grove is an organization out of kansas city started in kansas city and they planted a hundred urban orchards and decided to expand to other cities so they would talk to an urban ag organization or a tree organization and find a partner in that city and support them with some funding and do like matching funding and then plant urban orchards. So they are in 14 cities now. They are in Dallas and Denver and Cincinnati and Seattle and Omaha and St. Louis, just all over the place. They're really cool organizations. So they met with Danielle Crumrine, our CEO, and said, we'd love to be in Pittsburgh. This has been a long time coming. Tree Pittsburgh has gotten calls about fruit trees for a long time. They just never felt like they were going to get into that. And nobody here was a specialist in that. So we've always just said, sorry, we can't do much. And so Danielle felt like it was time. There is a demand. People want to grow fruit trees and grow Pittsburgh would get people who wanted to grow fruit trees and they didn't have a program and. To my understanding, Danielle said they definitely gave us their blessing on this program because fruit trees are trees. Um, They thought it made sense for us to take on this kind of wing in Pittsburgh. I have since learned that Penn State Extension doesn't even have anyone in the county that specializes in tree crops. So, you know, I talked to Jana, who I mentioned before, Jana Thompson. She, Mm -hmm. about 10 years ago, she decided she wanted to transform her backyard into an orchard. She espaliers all the trees. It's amazing. She grows so much fruit back there. And she said that when she was starting off, there was nowhere to go. There was nowhere to ask. There's really a dearth of fruit tree experts and a connected community around orchards in Pittsburgh. So this program is just in time. It's perfect. And we are so excited to bring it to Pittsburgh Um, I just went to the affiliate conference with all the other 14 cities. They bring us together in one of the program cities. So we were in St. Louis this year. I just went for a couple of days in August. I got to tour a dozen different orchards, permaculture homesteads, urban farms, rural farms, urban community gardens. I just got to see every different model there was. That is so cool.
0: How many trees constitutes an orchard?
1: Great question. There is no definition. If you Google it, it usually says a collection of fruit trees. We worked with Giving Grove. We said, what's an appropriate definition? Because we have this agreement with them. We're going to plant 30 trees in the fall, 45 next spring, 45 the following year. And we'll just keep it. In multiple, across multiple locations, right? Allegheny County. And that kind of depends on how many, we are only doing disease and pest resistant varieties. Anybody that knows anything about fruit trees, they're not the easiest thing to grow. They get attacked by a lot of pests and diseases and require a lot of pruning and commercial orchards spray a lot. So actually one of my colleagues in St. Louis, he runs orchards and he said he visited a commercial orchard outside St. Louis. And I can't remember if it was apples or peaches. They spray chemicals 25 to 30 times a season to get their fruit, to look like what people want to buy at a farmer's market. There's a huge educational curve. And if I can tell anybody anything in Pittsburgh, it's organic fruit is not gonna look perfect, but it's gonna be better for you. It's not gonna have those nasty chemicals. And a lot of the perfect fruit we are buying has been grown with nasty chemicals. Obviously you can go to Whole Foods or the co-op and buy a really nice piece of fruit that's organic. So it's possible. When I was in St. Louis, I went to these organic orchards. Giving Grove promotes all organic orcharding. And we saw gorgeous Asian pears and gorgeous apples. It's possible. So that was the beauty of being down there. I got to see mature orchards that were growing gorgeous fruit that were organic. Now, I saw diseased trees. I saw dead trees. It's hard. It's not an easy practice. Michael Phillips is quite a legend in the organic orchard community and giving Grove. One of their practices that they promote and have adopted is a holistic spray that Michael Phillips covers in his book. Michael Phillips it's the holistic orchard. And what it does is it builds up the ecosystem around the tree. So it's healthier. It's stronger. It's foliar and land spray and it's got, you know, fish emulsions and it's a whole concoction Mm, of these stinky too. Not all fish emulsions are stinky. It depends. It depends. So the giving grove promotes healthy culture. So picking up diseased fruit, getting rid of diseased branches, um, picking up, simply picking up fallen fruit is like a very important practice. Because a lot of things can be attracted to that and live in that. And also dead branches and fallen foliage, stuff like that. Good cultural practices, good sanitation can go a long way. And then these holistic sprays, you know, I think they do three to four times a year. And I'll be helping all of the orchards do this. That's my job is to support existing orchards and to create new orchards and to make sure there's stewards that feel confident maintaining those orchards. So we're gonna be doing workshops every season on pests and disease, soil health, maintenance practices, pruning, all of that. And so those will be free to the public, anybody who wants to come, and we'll have experts teaching those. We have Jem Atkin, he's from the Fruit Tree Planting Foundation. So I have an advisory committee for my program that we pulled together from a lot of people in the field involved in orcharding. We have people from Pasa Pennsylvania Association for Sustainable Agriculture, Fruit Tree Planting Foundation is really cool. He lives in Pittsburgh, but they I've plant this
0: guy I just all haven't met him over
1: yet. the world. All over the world, they're going to Peru this fall. They're going to Honduras, Guatemala. I mean, they plant.
0: So many trees. It's incredible. I I think I'm Facebook friends with this guy because someone mentioned him years ago and I was like, I need to get in on this.
1: He's really cool. He also published a book on home orcharding that I got from the Carnegie Library before I knew him. (laughs) It was really funny because when I got this job, I got a ton of books from the Carnegie Library on orcharding just to totally immerse myself in it. And I didn't know him or of him and I got his book. And then when I met with him, (laughs) he mentioned his book and I said, that's on my coffee table. (laughs) didn't know you published a book. (laughs) That's a great resource and he's a great resource. I'm connecting with other just very experienced orchardists, um, Sturgis Orchard, Aaron Sturgis. He's been lovely to talk to. His fruit is gorgeous. I don't know that he does organic practices. I haven't spoken with him specifically about that. But um, certainly is an expert in pruning and maintaining orchards. You know, I'm just connecting with orchardists because I think it's great to hear the different ways people prune. Just learn the pests and diseases from experts who have been doing this for a long time. So, um, like I said, I don't know he might use chemicals that we wouldn't use in an organic program. I'm not sure.
0: He might might be. We can idealize these things a lot.
1: Well, thankfully, there are a lot of great sprays that are organically approved. So we will be spraying for pests and diseases for specific ones that come up in addition to the holistic spray that's going to build up the ecosystem. If there's a specific pest, there are sprays you can use. There's some things like black knot on a plum. It's mostly pruning. And once it attacks the tree, there's not always a lot you can do. But other diseases and pests, there are sprays that are organically approved and we will be using those. So that's pretty important. You know, like there are resources that are not nasty chemicals that don't harm pollinators, Stuff like that, and also when you're talking about the parks, you know, when when Tree Pittsburgh is tackling knotweed, so we can plant trees and Mm -hmm. reforest things. Like, we're not eating those things. We're eating this fruit. So I think even if chemicals have their place, I'm pretty passionate about everything being organic. But if chemicals have their place, I think. We should try our best to keep it off our food if possible. And that's what we're doing with these fruit trees. And you are, even with the organic stuff, you're spraying at times where you're not always spraying the fruit. You know, you're spraying the tree before it blossoms or different times during the life cycle of the fruit production that doesn't always have to do with the actual fruit being on the tree. So we are, yeah, we do offer those resources and we'll be teaching all that. You know, what I found is I, I was talking about my advisory committee. So I tried to pull together a whole bunch of different people. We have Jen and Mike from A Few Bad Apples. They're a wonderful resource. They're going to be offering limited RSVP cider making workshop in the fall that people can go to their house and learn how they make cider. So keep an eye out for that. We'll be publicizing our fall workshops in the next month or so. So we'll be putting those out there. And then, yeah, people from PASA, Grow Pittsburgh, Oasis Farm and Fishery, Gem from the Fruit Tree Planting Foundation, Garfield Farms, Allegheny Land Trust, Grounded, just like a whole mixture of people that have been working in this field. So we can really build a community of people to share best practices and to support each other because what I'm finding is I have a list of about 40 sites in the county that are either farms or gardens um, that have orchard plants. And I'm doing site visits and I'm mapping those spaces so we know what's out there. And I'm also offering them free plants. I'm saying, do you want more fruit or nut trees or berries? And a lot of them are just so excited to have support. Somebody wanted a food forest and they planted trees or just orchard plants. They planted trees, maybe from Home Depot, not disease resistant. They have all these issues. They don't know what's happening. They don't have training. (laughs) Not everybody. There's people out there that kind of know what they're doing. But a lot of places don't, you know, and this is exactly why we have this program. So that I can become an expert to support all of these orchardists and connect people that know things that other people want to know. So it's a really beautiful new program we're super excited about. I've been sourcing pest and disease resistant varieties um, of fruit and nut trees and berries from local nurseries. And then we're going to put a big order in the spring and then our nursery is going to cultivate them every season um, from that. So we'll, we'll do like a spring order. And then we have an on-site nursery, if people don't know, Heritage Nursery, and we grow seedlings and we collect our own seeds for a lot of them. And we do a tree adoption program
0: where people can get free trees from us what kind of trees oh yeah are you planting yes. in these orchards like the pawpaw I'm yes not, I, I don't know if you'll have that because you mentioned you're doing semi-dwarf yeah um, and pawpaws are not
1: <laughs> well yes so the pawpaw might get bigger but um what we're doing is giving grove gave us a list of recommended varieties based on their experience so very disease and re- pest resistant that um require a little bit less spring, a little less maintenance, just don't tend to have as many issues. So they gave us a list of that. And then it's been a little bit of a scavenger hunt figuring out because Kansas City, they have different local nurseries that carry things than what we do. So I've been working with some local nurseries and then we will get some trees shipped in from, you know, nurseries that are not local for the spring just so we can have the variety we want. Um, But it's been quite a fun little puzzle to figure out all the different pollinators that pollinate each other and all the different varieties. And then I'm also trying to get a variety of pears and peaches and apples and Asian pears that is the longest season possible. So, you know, considering that we have late frosts, so there's some, there's like a variety of really early peach that's a little dicey because if those blooms get frost they're not going to produce any fruit so Mm -hmm. trying to think about a good window of bloom time given our late frost that sometimes we get snow in april and making it so that, for example, we're actually going to be planting an orchard at Farmer's Daughter at their flower farm. They're a flower shop on the north side that does beautiful arrangements. They have always dreamed of an orchard. We can plant anywhere in the county. So if somebody has... Where do they
0: have their farm?
1: Out in McKees Rocks. Okay. Yeah. So they have a big old space. We're probably going to do 15 to 20 trees. And so, for example... There's half your goal. Totally. Done. Totally. Mm -hmm. The challenge is can I get all the trees they want this fall? (laughs) We might have to do half this fall, half next spring based on availability. For example, if they, I wanted to have a nice variety so I can offer people what they're really excited about. Farmer's Daughter, I'm still finalizing my sourcing list so I don't quite know what I can offer people for a few weeks but once I get that finalized list, I can just say what do you want the most of? Do you want three months of peaches, or do you want two months of pears, or do you want three oh, months of apples? That is clever
0: way of thinking about because it. Because... So tell them when they're going to have the fruit, yeah. and then how much fruit of each. Oh, that is brilliant. Because
1: they might like peaches more than apples. So they might want all five types of peaches and they might want two of each type, so they get loads of peaches and they might not care about apples. But they might also want the widest variety. They might want one of everything, you know? And so I'm making sure that if they want five peaches that I can plant five that all pollinate each other. So it's been quite a fun little puzzle of pollination. That is fantastic. Um, and also figuring out what we can get. So there's a huge list like Adams County Nursery um, is in central PA. They have an amazing selection. They have a lot of disease resistant. We're super excited to order from them. And they don't always have every single thing available. And then you have to figure out rootstocks you're getting grass. the rootstock is going to determine the size of the tree. So maybe they have the disease resistant type I want, but on a standard rootstock, which is bigger than I want. So it's quite a fun little puzzle to figure everything out. And I've been really enjoying it. <laughs> Our nursery manager, Megan, has been really great to work with and has been doing this for a while. And her dad runs a nursery, Michael Brothers Nursery, that is local. He is the coolest person. I love being around him. And I went out to his nursery and bought a bunch of his trees. And I just have a lot that I'm excited to learn from him. He's been doing this for a long time and um, he carries quite a few pests and disease resistant varieties and it's been cool to get to know these local nurseries. They're super yeah. helpful. They're lovely to work with. And um, I will say this though, <clears throat> some nurseries carry what people want. So you're going to find a golden delicious apple. You're going to find a Rome apple. You're going to find a Cortland. Those are not maybe the best organic trees to grow they're not always disease resistant. So if you love pink lady apples, you might find you have more challenges than some other apples. So a pristine apple or a liberty apple that are just more disease and pest resistant. So, you know, people who wanna grow fruit trees, you should grow what you want. You should also consider if you're gonna use organic sprays. And I really just highly recommend disease and pest resistant varieties that are known to have less issues because growing fruit is not easy it requires quite a bit of maintenance and I think it's worth it. That's why we're doing this program. You know, it's beautiful. And I wanna say a heart of the Giving Grove program is food security. We have co-CEOs, Erica and Ashley in Kansas City and they have social work backgrounds. This is about food security. So if somebody wants us to give them trees or berry bushes, the stipulation is that there's two people who agree to learn how to maintain them organically, water on site, although if there's not water on site, we might be able to figure something out, preferably water on site, and they have to donate a portion. That's part of the agreement. Okay. So if somebody wants, so Farmer Starter, they are excited to donate some of that fruit. Food security is important. That is at the heart of this program, is we're not just giving away orchard plants for people to grow their own fruit. We want there to be a community element that we are feeding people that need food.
0: That's wonderful. Yeah. So will Tree Pittsburgh also sell fruit trees, the fruit trees that you source? I know you have a goal to plant 30, but you're creating all this interest in this now. Like what if I wanted to buy 10 trees from you and do my own?
1: So our nursery is wholesale. We think there may be wholesale interest with some of the people that we work with, entities we work with, but there might also be tree adoption interest so we'll we'll have to kind of figure out what we're able to do so maybe there would be fruit tree adoptions available that would be free to people and really as far as like selling to individuals that's really just a big decision for the nursery i'm not sure that we'll ever do that i'm not sure if you wanted 10 fruit trees and were willing to donate and have another person help you we would plant those for you it's anywhere in the county and it can be private land but well, if somebody, I don't, I don't have that. Yes. <laughs> so I for
0: ten trees, um, I've
1: got three. But um, I will just say, you know, again, if people people have to agree to donate a portion,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and we don't, I don't know that we have like a very specific amount, but you know, people, we're hoping people are generous, knowing that they're providing food to people that need it, and I think that can be as simple as if you know somebody in your neighborhood that's struggling you know, giving them some of that produce or a food pantry or 412 Food Rescue or, you know, there's a lot of places you can donate produce. So like like 20% or something. Yeah. Just something Mm -hmm. substantial that feels like you're sharing the love. So, um, so yeah, we, I mean, because here's the thing we want to plant on places that are protected from development. So not every Mm -hmm. adopt a lot unfortunately has that security as you well know. So here's the thing. Farmer's daughter owns their land and mm-hmm. they're like we're not going to develop this space. Yeah. That's a great option for us whereas a community garden that somebody can come along and offer money to the city and just buy up that land and plow it and put in housing. We're not sure if we want to put orchard plants there. Maybe we the will, but awesome. I will say I love advertising this program because if somebody has access to a site that is not gonna be developed, I hope they reach out to me so we can give them some plants. And we will help them plant them. They'll be invited to all of our workshops. And if they come to a pruning workshop, and they just feel overwhelmed or they have a lot of trees, I will come out and help them. So that is my job. <laughs> I love being helpful. So this is like the perfect job for me. Like, I just love helping people. This I'm like, sign me This is absolutely
0: the perfect job I will, for you, Kimberly. I will drive around
1: um, and help people.
0: <laughs> I, I, love, I love your energy. I love your story. Thank you so much yeah. for talking with me. So for, much for having me. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Everyone knows that food is cool. Eat that food with a bowl and spoon. Everyone knows that food is cool. No secret. Eat that food with a bowl and spoon. With Bowl and Spoon is written, produced, and hosted by me, Shelley Danko Day. Copy editing by Carolyn Ristow. Details Review. Original theme song was written and performed by Paul LeBris and friends. You can listen to With Bowl and Spoon anywhere you get your podcasts. Follow us and send us questions or messages on Facebook and Instagram, or on our website, withbowlandspoon.com. Thanks for listening!